for questions, so you can uh, be a participant in that. Something's happening. Use this. Okay. Are we dead? It's. I can probably shout, but I'd rather not. So I'm going to say a few things, and then we're going to open for questions. Uh, a number of years ago, or a couple of years ago, I was in Australia, and one of the pastors there recommended that I pick up and read this book, Horse Soldiers. It has nothing to do with preaching. But it does have to do with the war in Afghanistan. And it's about the rangers who went into Afghanistan before we went into Afghanistan. And the book begins, it begins with these words, Trouble came in the night, riding out of the dust and the darkness. Trouble rolled past the refugee camp, past the tattered tents, shuddering in the moonlight, a lone cry of a baby driving high into the sky like a nail. Sunrise was no better at sunrise. Trouble was still there, bristling with AKs and RPGs, engines idling, waiting to roll into the city, waiting. Major Mark Mitchell heard the news at headquarters nine miles away and thought, you're kidding, we got bad guys at the wire. He uh, began to uh, head towards where all of, that, uh, all of those 600 supposedly Taliban were surrendering at a fort. Uh, he uh, uh, was uh, uh, thinking, Major Mitchell was thinking again of the weapons that were stockpiled at that fort, uh, piles and piles of rockets, rifles, crates of ammo, tons of violence ready to be put to use. Not the fort, he thought, not the fort. And it goes on, it says in a dank corner uh, of, uh, of that fort, uh, the floor that smelled with worms and sweat, brooded a young American, his friends knew him by Abdul Hamid. He'd walked for days to get to this moment to surrender. Uh, he hoped it'd finally lead him home. He was tired, hungry, his chest was pounding, skipping a beat like a washing machine out of balance. He worried that he was going to have a heart attack. A scary thought at the age of 21. And it goes on and it talks about the battle that began. In the southern courtyard, Emil Habib had been shot in the leg, lay in the dirt, and he tried crawling back but it was too far. He wondered if he'd ever see his mother again in California, wondered who the strange men who had been asking him questions, wondered who they were, wondered if they knew his real name, John Walker Lind. Major Mitchell pulled out his pistol and began to be overrun. That's how the book begins. It begins with that battle. That battle, as you begin to read through that book, that battle doesn't begin again or isn't, uh, the story isn't told until page 247. Now, what had happened is that he had introduced in the prologue something that had caught my mind and caught my attention. And before I knew it, I had run through the prologue very quickly. I was into chapter one, then chapter two. Uh, and I had made a major investment in reading this book. I had already bought into reading the book. I was investing my time. I was investing my energy. I was uh, uh, submitting my mind to the processes that he was putting out in the words that he had written. And I want to say that there is a case to be made. I evangelized for five, five and a half years, nearly five and a half years and I've noticed in many, many places, I've seen a lot of preaching. I've done a lot of preaching. I don't consider myself a preeminent preacher by any stretch of the imagination. I am an admirer of good preaching. I can tell you that. And uh, we've got the best. We are a fellowship of preachers. And I, I am totally stunned at the quality of our preaching every single, every single conference. But many pastors, Bible study leaders... Uh, concert preachers, uh, people who give altar calls, even testimonies. They begin to share or they begin to speak, but the people that are listening do not buy into it. You can actually preach an entire sermon and have people that have not actually bought into the idea, bought into uh, investing their energy, getting on board, being a part of what's actually going on in the sermon. And, and that's a tragedy. 
And it's a tragedy because we really do have the message. I mean, it, it is the message. And it is God's choice. I think all of us are familiar with this, the scripture. It's the foolishness of preaching that God has chosen. Peter says in Acts 15, and Pastor Mitchell was in that chapter last night, and Peter says, a good while ago, God chose that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. God chose that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of God and believe. Second Timothy, we're familiar with that. For to preach the word, be ready in season, out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. I want to share just two things with you. I am uh, not going to uh, give a, a, a dissertation. I could, I could give you a homiletics class, I suppose. Uh, but it's not just about public speaking. Uh, preaching is very, very, very individual. It is, it is something that comes from within. Uh, it, it, homiletics, they say it's the art and science of delivering religious discourses. Uh, I don't know about all that, but there is an art and there is a science. And in a sense, nobody can teach you uh, uh, a lot about preaching. I can't really teach you how to do that. You have to learn uh, what's natural, what's possible, what's effective, and then you have to start there and grow with that and, uh, and basically never stop growing with that. And we have to do that. We have to find out and follow people that are effective, uh, neither coveting, coveting their gift, uh, nor copying, <laughs> okay? And, uh, and so I have to move in that uh, dimension. Public speaking is certainly important. That's not primarily what I'm interested in right now. Someone has said lousy preaching is a moral failure. Unsound preaching is a moral failure. And, uh, and uh, you know, one of the questions somebody asked was, uh, can you prepare 52 Sunday sermons without lying too much? <laughs> and we have to get to that dynamic. I'm not going to give you things about outlines, although the ability to put into notes <laughs> is important. Uh, I think I've tried them all, all, everything. Everything you could try, I think I've probably tried. Uh, if you come up with a new one, I'll probably try that one too. Uh, I used to type out my sermons. I'm a terrible typist. I'm a terrible typist. Uh, one finger, I've graduated to two or three now. And it's uh, taken uh, you know, a long, long time, 30 plus years to do that. And, uh, but if I invest the time to type it and put it on a page, I'm going to read it. I don't care if it takes four hours, I'm going to read it to you. <laughs> And so I learned I can't do it that way. You have to do it other ways. You have to learn how to do that. Not about study, study habits. Uh, that's important. The number one complaint of wives is my husband doesn't study. And so uh, not about that. I have been, I don't, I don't consider myself a great public speaker. I have been, over the years, Pastor Mitchell's example of bad doesn't look at the congregation. He's got to, stuff to say, but he's looking over here. And then he's looking over there and, and all those different kinds. And he reads his notes and all those different kinds of things. Uh, I'm not, not going to talk about all those things. There are two things that I remember recently. Pastor Greg gave a seminar uh, on how to study uh, some, uh, a couple of years ago maybe. Uh, here had uh, PowerPoint slides, all of that. Uh, that was a powerful time. Uh, also, his sermon, the last men's rally, I believe, in Phoenix on casting vision is loaded with material about preaching. So what happens to us is we just learn to get by. I took speech class in high school and promptly dropped it. I couldn't bear the idea of getting up in front of people and talking. I, I've, in fact, uh, it's still difficult. Uh, and, and I dropped that. But what happened to me is I went on to college and I had to take it. And so here I am in a college class taking speech. I hate speech. I don't want speech. I'm not interested in speech. It's a boring class. Uh, I'm not interested in anything in here. And so I had to get, but I had to do it. 
And so I learned to get by with content, content. I could deliver content. In high school, I read two volumes on, uh, by Ernst Klauber on rattlesnakes. Now, maybe that doesn't interest you, but it interested me in high school. And, uh, and so by the time I got to college, I had that under my belt. So a number of my speeches were on rattlesnakes. <laughs> Uh, I had uh, studied the weather. I gave speeches on the weather. I had uh, looked at the stars, and I gave speeches on the stars. And so I could, I could load up my sermon with content, and I actually got by. I got a good enough grade on the content part to override the bad grades on the rest of the part. And so I made it through. And in a sense, a lot of us are that way. We learn to get by with one of our strengths. Some of us get by with our content. Some of us get by with personality. We have the gift of gab. And we get by a good deal of the time because it's easy for us to relate to people and to get into their lives and to uh, move in that dimension. And we get by with personality sometimes. Some people get by with personality. Some people get by just on their good looks, but as you get older, that won't work. Uh, some people can put the form together. And, uh, and they get by with the form and all those different kinds of things. Some people, uh, uh, you know, uh, get by with the subject matter. You can play to the choir. You can throw out a, a, uh, a, a jab at, at, uh, at queers and uh, get the laugh and the, and the crowd you feel like is with you. Uh, you can uh, talk about women preachers and, uh, and the crowd will be with you. And, and, uh, and you can play to the choir that way. But there are two things that every sermon needs. Because just getting by is not adequate long term. It'll bring your congregation to a place of dullness and disinterest, and you'll be going through the motions without the reality. Ideas, one man has said, are the stock of the thought world. And from the ideas burst forth the external things. Loving God or rebellion against God in the external world. The battle for man is centrally in the world of thought. And what you're doing in a sermon is you are packaging thought. You're actually packaging something quite like fog. It's just really difficult to get it into the right form. And so two things. One Every sermon needs, and I'm going to borrow a phrase from a friend of mine, traction. Traction. Why is horse soldiers written that way? Why did he take a portion of the battle that comes at the end of the story, move it all the way to the prologue? Why did he do that? This is a tactic that novelists use all the time. Journalists use this all the time. Composers use this. Uh, good preachers know this. It is to get traction. To get traction. Your congregation is in a certain position. And, uh, and, and you know, maybe we don't know everything that's out there, but if you're a good pastor, you're, you're working, you're Bible study leaders, you're, you're familiar with a congregation in a concert scene or something, and so they're in, a, they're in a particular place, but you want them to be somewhere else. And to get them there, you have to get them moving. And you cannot get them moving without having traction. It's like, you know, a trailer hitch is made to be attached to something. And so to get a trailer to move, to get a van to move, you have to have traction. You have to begin to move them from where they are at. And so you have to begin to get traction. People are made for attachment. They follow leaders. They want to follow leaders. But something has to be provided for them to attach to. They need to move their focus and their attention from their most recent cell phone conversation or text message. 
have to move their mind from the fight that they had with their wife on the way to church. You have to get their mind off of tomorrow's crisis on the job when they have to talk to the boss. You have to, you have to gather them up and you, every sermon must have traction. If you don't get traction, then their mind continues to go on whatever vein it was. Maybe their favorite sports team is playing that Sunday morning and, uh, and you've got to unlock their mind somehow from what may be going on. Maybe they're losing, maybe they're winning, oh, maybe they can't wait to get to the phone and, and, uh, and see what the score is. Maybe they're getting to the phone right during the sermon and finding out what the score is. But you have to have traction to move them along. The point in horse soldiers is the battle uh, that the book opens with doesn't occur again until page 247. He's going to spend a lot of time talking about the soldiers that are involved, their wives, their families, uh, and talk about John Walker Lind and how he became a Muslim and how he got into that battle. He's going to talk about this kid from Northern California who was raised uh, in kind of a quasi-Christian home. How did he become a Muslim? And he's going to spend a lot of time doing that as he leads up to this battle, the climax of the book. And he's writing the book. He has to get you to buy into the book because at the end of the book, he's going to give his anti-war epilogue. And if he can't get you to buy into the story at the start, then he can't get to the point that he wants to make at the end. And I recommend the book if you skip the epilogue. Tear it out, throw it away. Because it's a tremendous story. and has tremendous personalities. And I read it, and I read it, I bought into it. I read it in just a couple of days, got a couple of sermon illustrations out of it, had a great time, and I'm using it again as an illustration right now. That's good things to have, illustrations. That's what he did in Harm's Way. Doug Stanton's other book in Harm's Way is about the sinking of the Indianapolis. And his point in the book was to defend the captain of the Indianapolis, the only only Navy captain in U.S. history to be court-martialed for losing his ship due to an act of war. And the captain of the Indianapolis committed suicide in his 60s, living with all of the guilt that went on with the court-martial and everything else. And so Doug Stanton had a point to make. Sermons have a point to make. And we have to get there. You can look at sermons and see it very clearly. You uh, heard uh, Pastor Ruby this morning talk about the torch and, uh, and begin to move from that, uh, especially if you're uh, uh, from uh, England. That's the big news in England is the, the Olympics, the Olympics, the Olympics, the Olympics. And, uh, and so and move uh, people into that, uh, that arena. Uh, Pastor Mitchell, I remember a number of conferences back, preached a whole sermon on rats. Rats. I just happened to have a book in my library at the time about rats. Some guy, you can believe it, some guy had actually gone to New York City and studied rats in restaurants. Wow. Told when they came out at night and what they did and where they ran around and how they built their whole colony of rats. A lot different than ratatouille, by the way. <laughs> Pastor Payne, uh, I trust he does it again this week, but he generally begins with a story. Sometimes it's a joke, sometimes it's a funny story, sometimes it's something else, but he always starts and he gathers traction for his sermon. If you do not get traction, then the sermon isn't able to go anywhere. You're not getting that. You must allow them to buy into it. They have to begin to invest energy. You know, once you've read 200 pages, I guess I got to plow through to the end. Okay. And so once you get them moving and get them to invest some energy to buy into what you're saying, then you have a chance. Then you have a chance to make the point that God wants to make. The second thing that a sermon needs is concrete. Concrete reality. Pastor Ruby this morning started talking about heritage. 
It's really easy to begin to preach on inheritance and heritage and use those words. But those are not very concrete words. What Pastor Ruby did is he began to take, and he started actually with Pastor Warner, talked about under 40, talked about all that had happened by the time Pastor Warner was 40, went on to talk about others that were out pastoring, da 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 And then he said, that's heritage. That's the heritage that we have. What he actually did is take a very nebulous and difficult word and made it concrete. He gave it a place to land in our hearts, gave it a place in our mind to land, gave it something that had substance. Rather than just being a word that's out there, it's a perfectly legitimate word. It's a good word. It's not an evil word. And it's a word that's biblical. And it's a word that has great biblical importance. But he gave it a spot to land in our lives. It gave it concrete. When Doug Stanton is writing Horse Soldiers, he throws out John Walker Lind. And if you were familiar with the beginning of the Afghanistan war then, and the arrest of John Walker Lind and the big trial that was going to go on, all the different kinds of things were going on. And here's the name, and so that triggers something uh, in your mind. And then he develops this young man's story on through the work. That's to give it a face. That's to give it something more than just there was a kid there that got shot in the leg and, uh, you know, he was raised a Christian and became a Muslim. And, uh, and, uh, and no, he gave him a name, gave him a mother, gave him a, a hometown, gave him all of these other things that make it concrete, make it, make it live, make it come alive in a person's mind rather than just being an idea. The other rangers that partake in the, uh, participate in that battle, uh, they have homes, they have wives, they have children, they have backgrounds, they have stories, uh, they have personalities that he develops. Uh, all of those things are necessary in order for people to have something form in their mind that's concrete that they can grasp and hang on to. There has to be a place in the mind and the heart for your sermon to land. If it is a dull sermon, sermons are always dull when you just say the same thing and the same thing and the same thing and the same thing. And they are always dull when they have no practical application or a place to land in the human heart. Think about the seven letters in Revelation. They are very specific letters. And if the post office of that day had gotten them all confused and sent them to different places, they would have made no sense at all. Because in those letters, there are specific references. Thou hast that woman Jezebel. Okay. There's going to be 10 days of tribulation. There are specific issues in those letters that make that letter land in the congregation that's going to hear that letter. Has specific direction, has guidance for those people, has a place for them. It's popular today to, uh, to, uh, to uh, uh, say uh, uh, we, and I'm talking about myself, and I had a good friend of mine uh, who would come and preach for us every once in a while, and he would always say, uh, and remember, when I point at you, there's three fingers pointing back at me. That's very popular today, but one of the things that, that happens there is you take the concrete out of it. You make it just a nebulous thing for some crowd somewhere. And I know that it's difficult to say, use guys, But sometimes it has to be said. When Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, he says, you have killed the Prince of Glory. Amen. He didn't say, three fingers pointing back to me, uh, my sin too. And no, no, no. He said, you use guys. And then he went on through the sermon. You pay attention to the sermon. He made it very concrete. The one you killed was the one God sent to you. 
And then at the end of the sermon, he says, you did it ignorantly, now repent. And see, he opens the door again for them to repent. That's a very powerful. There are several sermons you can look at in the book of Acts that are very powerful examples of preaching. Uh, truth can't simply be put out there. Uh, you, oh, this may not apply to you. Uh, it may apply to them. Uh, Jesus asked very specifically, uh, whom do men say that I am? And then he said, whom do you say that I am? And so there has to be some concrete dimension to it. That's why it's difficult to use some of the illustrations out of illustration books. They're not concrete. They're just kind of foggy. Uh, that's why uh, Jesus, uh, I have a uh, Clovis G. Chapel, uh, wrote a book uh, called Questions That Jesus Asked. And Jesus made it very concrete. Uh, the, the, uh, the folks who, uh, what, what do you more than others? What do you do more than others? Uh, which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit to his stature? Why do, you, why do you behold the mote that's in thy brother's eye, but consider not the beam that's in your own eye? See, these are very concrete things. These are very specific things. These are places that, uh, that allow the sermon and the point that Jesus is going to make it, allow it to land in a person's heart. And allow it to, to become real in their heart. Pastor Mitchell uh, in, uh, in Israel, we were uh, putting uh, some sermons together, and he's uh, commenting that I like to work from an antithesis. I like to do, uh, you know, the, the philosophers, they have thesis, antithesis, synthesis. Well, we just skipped the synthesis. Uh, the antithesis, this is what you say. Or you'll hear Pastor Mitchell say, uh, there's a common error. We have a common error in our generation. Uh, this is how we think in our generation. And that's how he begins to gain traction and gather people in and make it concrete because that is how we think. And then he brings the antithesis that this is the truth into that sermon and makes the point. We're not simply sharing. And we're not simply telling a story. It's more than a story. It's what God has asked us to do. Okay. That's two things. Traction and a place to land. Something concrete. You have to say something concrete. And the sooner in the sermon you say it, the quicker you're going to have their attention. So I want to stop here. Anybody know what I just did? What did I just do? I laid out the essentials. How did I do that? What did I do? Okay, I illustrated what I was talking about. Anybody else pick that up? If, I, if you didn't, it, it's a waste of time. We'll all go home right now. <laughs> what? Horse soldiers. What are men interested? Guns, RPGs, uh, soldiers, you know, uh, winning the war. Uh, you know. And so, uh, uh, traction, just two simple thoughts and concrete. Okay, so I want to take time for a few minutes for questions. And so we uh, want you to ask questions uh, about preaching. This will help me. I know there are a number of very good preachers in here. They can help us. Uh, if you are just beginning, maybe you have a question, maybe you've been around a while, you have a question, uh, feel free to ask. If I don't know the answer, I'll say, beats the fire out of me. I don't know. I don't know everything. So somebody who's got a question back here in the back. Wait for the microphone. So even when you, as in, um, when you, when you start preaching, you don't always want to cut deep not well not cut deep but explain to them like okay look this is how this is how i got you're 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 pointing out their the the sin their nature and then you still bring hope or do you do you just start off slowly bringing that in okay, as in as in um as in the sin nature 
Okay, because we're going to try and move them someplace, okay? So you have to get traction first, okay? Generally, people don't like it when you get up and scream at them, you're going to burn in hell. Okay. They respond better to a joke, okay? Uh, they respond better to something they can relate to. They respond better to a question that they have in their heart, okay? Okay. Uh, the question that they're speaking is not always the question that they want the answer to. One chaplain said, you discover that the guy that raised his hand and wants to know where Cain got his wife, he may be asking, can I sleep with my girlfriend? And so, so what you're trying to do is to get them to come on board to you. Okay. Generally, uh, there's no magic here, but you're going to have to uh, put God's agenda in. A sermon is God's agenda. That's what you're delivering is God's agenda. Okay. Generally, and, and, uh, and you'll hear and you'll see this with Pastor Mitchell many, many times and, and Pastor Payne especially uh, and numbers of others of our, our preachers. When we get to the third point, okay, most of us don't have any trouble putting the blade in. Okay, that's not really our problem. Not generally. Especially if somebody in the congregations really ticked us off during the week and we got a whole sermon just for them. Okay. But you'll find out that in, as you bring it to the conclusion, because it's what Peter did, he opened the door. Now you can repent. Now you know what happened. You know what came down. God's opening the door to do something in your life. And there's a... There's an element of mystery, the mystery of God. I thought it was tremendous last night with Pastor Mitchell. There's a mystery. God is holding some things as a mystery. We don't know everything. Okay, but he's given us this promise. He's given us these signs. He's given us this indication that we're on the threshold. We're on the threshold. And God is getting involved. God's getting involved. God's getting involved in what's happening in our, in our life, in our ministry. God's getting involved in what's happening in our fellowship. God's getting involved. And that's where you bring that in at the end. You bring that at, uh, we used to, we used to uh, in the early years of our conferences, we used to hang for Friday night because Pastor Mitchell would heal us up. Everybody else was blading us terribly, brutalizing us, chopping us in pieces, leaving us the wounded, walking wounded, wounded, dead, whatever. And, uh, and so Pastor Mitchell would come in and say, hey, God's involved in this. And that's, that's the art of the sermon. That's the art of the sermon. Good question. Anybody else? Question right here, Bob. He'll get the mic to you. Yeah, I was just going to comment on, on that. Uh, I, was, I remember reading uh, John Henry Jowett, uh, a number of his stuff on preaching, and he mentioned that uh, in the sermon there has to be an element of both shame and hope that uh, are mingled together, uh, the, and uh, the shame part first uh, in order to, to, to reveal the need and then the hope that uh, is to yeah. it. And, and you'll hear it said you, you can't, you have to preach them into hell before you can get them out. Okay. And, and they have to feel that presence and power of God. They have to feel, you know what, I'm thinking this way. Wow, how, how, how did I get this messed up in my life? And then there's that, that uh, balm of Gilead. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith the Lord. And, uh, and that's a part of preaching, okay? Most of us have no trouble condemning everybody to hell. Okay. Getting them out is sometimes our problem. Okay. Good. Somebody else. I was just curious about how much traction do we gain in the beginning because there's been times where uh, giving that, that illustration that you read in the book in the beginning... I said, now we could just bow our heads and close our eyes and just go home, you know. Uh, you want to keep that carrot on the stick and give that concrete, that uh, all the content you're talking about throughout. But uh, my problem has been, you know, giving, uh, you know, I, I like conference. They got 20 revelations. I got, I'm a one revelation preacher. And if I give my traction in the beginning, uh, <laughs> how much do I do? I hold it back or do well, you, I just you notice that, that the torch came in several places in pastor ruby's sermon okay uh 
if, if, unless I miss my guess, I would say most of us as preachers, uh, when we get a scripture, we've, we've, we get this, this kernel, if, we, if we're honest, we can boil it down to about one thought. God's, God is saying one thing. And so that's cool. But if you just get up and give that sentence, you're going to have a job pretty soon. <laughs> just get up and give that sentence. Someone might get it. Most people won't. It's just words. Okay. Uh, when, when we built sermons in Israel, Pastor Mitchell will say, that'll preach. And I'm looking at that and I'm thinking, <laughs> that'll preach. It just needs to be fleshed out. And so you've got a skeleton. You've got, you've, you've got a, a thing there. But it has to begin to relate to where people actually are. That's fleshing it out. That's getting current illustrations. That's getting things that relate to people where they're at. That's, uh, and as you begin to dig into the, into the Scripture, that's where those other revelations come from, is, is, oh, wow, that relates to that. And this guy over here. And, the, yeah. and, uh, and you begin to see, wow, this is, this is a theme that carries through the Bible. Okay. And so you caught that this morning with Pastor Lamb's sermon. Here's, here's, uh, here's the, uh, the, uh, the Holy Spirit. They were full of the Holy Spirit. He got the response from the congregation, full of the Holy Spirit, full of the Holy Spirit, full of the Holy Spirit. Okay. And so that, that carries. Okay. Uh, you don't have to preach... An hour and a half. I think uh, the, uh, the uh, current uh, aim is about 35 minutes. I've been trying to do that for years. I'm, I'm old school. I preach 45 minutes, and, and oh, man, to try and do less than that is like, yeah. But I'm trying. I'm trying. Question over here. You just mentioned the 35 minutes there. Um, like on a pioneer setting, obviously, that's very important. You don't preach too long. You want to keep your service short, fellowship, and love everybody afterwards. And so as far as putting together your sermon, you know, obviously your title and points and stuff, what's, what's one of the keys that you've found that has helped you to, or can yeah. help to preach within those 35 minutes, you know, three basically, points? Basically, yeah, basically when we begin to preach, we want to deliver the mother of all sermons. We're going to solve this problem. <laughs> this sermon. This is the mother of all sermons. This is the sermon. That I should be preaching this at conference. This is the sermon that's going to solve the issues of this congregation. Okay. Someone has said, quit trying to preach the sermon for the ages. Preach the sermon for today. And I think that helps me. Uh, I just have a strange nature. I would like to preach the mother of all sermons every time, but they don't work that way. I've preached the ugly stepchild many, many, many times. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, to bring it into 35 minutes, it's like uh, Hollywood. It's the cutting room floor. Okay, the cutting room floor. Does this further what God's trying to do? Okay. Does this, does this illustration move me on down the track to what God's doing? Or is it something that's really not going to help me? You know, a lot of sermons are filled with a lot of trivial pursuit. Okay. It's an interesting little thought. That's an interesting little thought. That's an interesting little thought. Those interesting little thoughts, they can be laid aside because someday they'll become sermons. Okay. Uh, but, but we can't pursue every track. We can't solve every issue. We can't do everything at all in one sermon. Uh, the building of a congregation is a process. Building of a human soul is a process. Our own building is a process. And so that's good. Uh, over here, right here. Uh, Pastor Greg has spoken about the, the work that it takes to put the sermon together. You know, sometimes it's you know, hot revelation, as he calls it. Other times it's more of a diligent labor. 
but is there a point when you realize like this is this is kind of a dud? Uh, this won't preach. Uh, when when does it realize that you're you're trying to work and it just needs to be put away until inspiration comes? I've got some of those. <laughs> is there a moment? I, I've got one that I really want to preach, and I I I don't know. I've probably pulled it out for five or six years. It just ain't working. <laughs> it's just not working. I believe it's true, but but when I want to put it into a into into a a week of sermon or into into a a pro process of sermons that I'm preaching over a period of time, this is bonehead. I don't I don't want to do this, and so uh, so I just put it aside. Uh, a lot of times, what happens there is is you have a particular vein of thought, and it's good. It's not working because it has to be rearranged. It really has to be rearranged. Uh, it has to be approached at a different point or something. And so I can't explain all of that. I can just tell you that there are sermons I've put together and I've looked at them and I've thought, oh, that don't go there. That goes here. And, uh, you know, we preach three sermons a week. Uh, don't get caught up in all of the, the, the stuff that goes on with these guys that only preach once a week and only three times a month. Uh, I'm going to give you a list of books that you can read. And most of the books encourage you to start your Sunday sermon on Monday. Excuse me, my Wednesday sermon is starting on Monday. <laughs> if I'm fortunate, I got maybe two or three sermons that are going, kind of cooking, you know. <laughs> but, but no, I don't have time to do that. And then, uh, you know, I forgot which, uh, which famous preacher would always sit down and just read a, a book. Just read a whole book uh, on Saturday. Just relax. Read a whole book. Uh, become refreshed. Uh, well, that's cool, but that ain't my life. And so you'll see that in those books. You, you just get what you can get and, and uh, apply it. And I, I'll just say something else. You become a good preacher by preaching. And, and uh, it's, it's like being an athlete. You can, you can do the training, training ground stuff, but you're not going to get good unless you compete. You have to actually compete. And so you have to get in the arena with the devil and preach to become a good preacher. And so three times a week, I know the whole world wants to just preach one time on Sunday for 28 minutes, two minutes for commercials. <laughs> and, uh, and have a grand old time. And it's no wonder their sermons are superficial. So we had uh, some other hands up uh, over here in the blue shirt. Hello. Yeah. Okay, got a question about the, the last point. Mm -hmm. uh, coming to that point of hope in the sermon, um, mm -hmm. I find myself sometimes, you know, you know, you're dealing with different issues on the sermon, but you know, the hope is always Jesus Christ, you know, and uh, sometimes I feel like I get too general always, and yes. it's always the same answer. How do I narrow it down and end off with <laughs> making it clear, not just always, it's just Jesus. Well, I never have to come back forever. Then I know it's just Jesus. <laughs> so I mean, how do I narrow it? Jesus down? is the answer. Right. What, what so, can you say? I mean, that's right. it. So you know, it's, sometimes I feel like, well, Jesus is the answer, bro. That's all you need to know. Don't, don't ever come back. You know? So how do I help or you know finish the sermon off right? Because I get, feel like I got two good points, and I get to the end, and it's always like, well, the answer's the same. You know, with more concrete, I guess. Yeah. Well, so okay, Jesus is the answer. Okay. How do I make that answer real in my life? How do I get that to be a reality in my life? Because most of the world is running around with just words in their mouth. We are in an over-communicated world. It is like way over-communicated. There are words and noises forever. And so they're going to have to have help. Okay, what does that mean? Jesus is the answer. What does that mean? That would be a good sermon, actually. Okay, so what does that mean? What does that mean for me? What does that mean in my heart? What does that mean in my daily life? What does that mean in my marriage? What does that mean in whatever it is that I've been preaching on? Uh, how does that relate to that? And so the third point to bring hope is uh, that third point is sometimes a sticker because we, we, we don't have a problem sticking the blade in. It's, it's the cure, <laughs> the cure that we have trouble with. And, uh, and I, I would say a lot of preachers do.
the preachers that excel have that ability to make that point concrete and to make it real. You can by prayer. You can by uh, getting on your knees. You can by, uh, by coming and, and talking and getting that out. Uh, uh, you, can, you, can, you can find Jesus personally. Okay, and, and God will help you with that. Uh, any, any point like that, okay, the more concrete you can make it. Use some illustrations. Say, I know old sister so-and-so. She's blah, 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 da, 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 da. And what she did is she started did this praying or she started doing this, she started doing that, and, uh, and God has intervened in her life and done marvelous things. And so that gives them hope. Well, if sister so-and-so can do that, I can sure do that because she's a real clod. You know, <laughs> and so, uh, you know, uh, you know, and, and, you know, a lot of times we're intimidated by the great saints, you know. We're, we're all intimidated by all the saints that prayed money in, you know. How did you do that? You know? <laughs> How that happened? Somebody else, where's uh, another hand over here, right here? Right here down, down the aisle. Right straight, straight ahead. Yeah, yeah just, I just wanted to say something about that before I ask my question. Because there's... There is the answer is the same every time. Oh yeah. But, but the approach to an answer sometimes is very much different. People came to Jesus in a lot of different ways, a lot of different avenues, and so to tailor that to the point you're trying to make is probably helpful sometimes. Mm -hmm. But the question I wanted to ask is, as we're talking here, it's almost like we're saying every sermon has to solve a problem. But does every sermon have to solve a problem? Are there times we can just preach? You know, the love of God, there's no problem there. Not like we're trying to solve something, but just to bring the revelation of an aspect of God or an aspect of serving God without maybe having a large problem we're trying to solve in the congregation. Well, I don't think we're trying to solve a large problem every service, I hope. Hope our churches can move along. Every sermon is about God's agenda. Okay. That includes the revelation of God. Who God is. Okay, I'm not sure Pastor Mitch was particularly trying to solve a problem last night, uh, but he was trying to bring hope. I'm sure of that. He was trying to encourage, and he was trying to put down some markers about what it is that we are as a fellowship. And so, uh, yeah, all those things are legitimate. Yeah, uh, most of us are going to preach on commitment. Then we're going to preach on commitment. Then we're going to preach on commitment. And we'll throw in, you ought to give some money uh, every once in a while. And so uh, you have, you know, let me just share with you. The reason you do that, because you're trying to get by on personality. You're trying to get by on form. You're trying to get by on content. Rather than take the congregation someplace. Okay. You have to take them somewhere. It's God's agenda. Where else? Where else? Uh, Okay, right here, Bob. And then back in the back. Oh, I was just going to comment on what he said. Even a sermon on the love of God, which doesn't deal with <laughs> the problem. Uh, you're not trying to solve a problem, but the problem is, is that man doesn't love God many times or doesn't know how to love God. So you could still approach in the sermon, sure. you know, it, probably not your final point, but maybe in your middle point of uh, here's the problem. You know, there's too many things contending for our love that take away from the love of God. And, and how do we keep that and so that you can still approach it from that same particular yeah. way. I've preached on the love of God a lot of times and just made the comment, we're an unloving fellowship, so I thought I'd preach on the love of God. And so, I mean, that's the accusation. I mean, that's the accusation. Uh, far more of the love of God here than I felt in a lot of places where there wasn't, there really wasn't any emotion at all. I think it was dead. Who's got the mic back here? Okay. So the, the question I had is, we, we talked about having these great thoughts for a sermon and having to gain traction. <laughs> yeah. Are there specific questions that you'd like to ask or the ways you'd like to uh, attack the scripture in order to uh, begin to build a case to build traction? Are there questions you specifically like to ask uh, when, you, when you develop a thought that's not necessarily a one, two, three, this is how you preach a sermon? Uh, it's, it's kind of vague. You've got to flesh it out. Are there, does, that, does that question make sense? Okay, so 
Uh, here's a question you have to ask about discernment. What? And then you have to ask, so what? What am I saying? And so what? Is it important? Is it really important? What and so what? Does this sermon give mere content or did it gain traction, have a concrete landing and bring the congregation someplace that God wanted them to go? What and so what? I mean, they're pretty simple questions. And they're really quite profound when you get right down to it. What am I saying? And does it really make a difference? Does it matter? If it doesn't matter, then you need to get another sermon. Or you need to get a real sermon. Or you need to make that one a real sermon. Did I take responsibility... Let me put it this way. Did I take responsibility to make sure they understood what God was saying? Or did I preach it to impress them? Or did I preach it to get old sister so-and-so? Okay. Did I take responsibility? Because the preacher is the responsible party. And, and so did I, did I do that? Did I take responsibility to see that they got it, that they understood it? Did they buy into what I was saying? Did they, they, did they get engaged? Did it, did it move them? Did it do something in them? I have a, a sermon I preached a long time ago on, on Paul. And in that sermon... I ask myself four questions. I said, what do I want them to know? What I want them to know. It's talking about God and Paul and evangelism and, and uh, that dynamic. And so uh, I, want them, I want them to be aware of the spirit that Paul had. What motivated him to go all over the world and suffer over and over and over and over again. What do I want them to feel? What do I want to happen in their emotions? Now, these, are, these are questions I ask of a sermon that I preached. And so maybe this relates to your question, what kind of questions do you ask? And so uh, what do I want them to feel? I want them to feel some passion. I want them to feel maybe some guilt that they don't have passion about evangelism. Maybe I want them to feel some shame that they don't do any evangelism. But I want them to feel something about evangelism. What do I want them to do? What do I want them to know? What do I want them to feel? What do I want them to do? And this might relate to uh, Jesus is the answer. Okay, Jesus is the answer. What do I need to do to have that answer come into my life? I wanted them to evangelize, and I wanted some zeal. And then I asked, what do I want them to be? And the basic answer was, I really want them to be evangelists. And did that sermon solve all those issues? No, not hardly. But it was one that helped us get on down the road in evangelism. And I don't think they're bad questions. I don't think they're evil questions. But I think you can use two or three of those questions uh, most of the time over a sermon. What do I want them to know? What, what, what's going on in this thing? Preaching is really more than just getting up and yelling and screaming. It's really more than that. The human heart's a very complex kind of a creature. It's got all kinds of defenses. 
doesn't want to change or shift gears. And it's only preaching that really gets into that domain. And so those are questions that, that uh, I thought were profitable to me at that time. I don't do that all the time. I'm not giving you a formula or anything like that. But they are uh, questions that you can ask. That help you? Help you. And uh, who, else, who else had a hand up back there? Somebody else? All right. Uh, mine's uh, kind of just a, a comment. Maybe you can add to it or something. Mm -hmm. uh, when we get sent out from our mother church, uh, we, we're hearing uh, these amazing sermons. <laughs> and we get out to uh, the sinner, and uh, they come into our churches, and somehow we're, we're going to, uh, you know, sound very eloquent in communicating <laughs> this, uh, as you said, this mother of all sermons. <laughs> and um, I wanted to just make a comment just how... When we get sent out, we're not trying to compete with the religious world, but just uh, make it very practical so that someone could actually understand what you're trying to say. Not dumbing down the message, but something that they can actually hang their hat on. And yeah. um, I don't know, maybe you can ask they're, them. They're going to, they don't know what good preaching is. That's the great blessing of pioneering. They haven't got a clue. They don't know. And if you give them something to hang their hat on, you give them a sermon that helps them get into their marriage, get their marriage fixed, you give them a sermon about how to organize their finances, you give them that material, you are the great guru of planet Earth. You, you're the hero. You're their hero. They love you. And so what you're doing, what you literally do, you, this, is what, this is a problem in our fellowship. That's why people can backslide if they want to, but they can't go anywhere because there's no place to go. Uh, is that all this great preaching, we're trained to appreciate good preaching. And that's a tremendous thing. I could teach you a homiletics class. It'd be very boring. Uh, I have been to seminary. But I didn't learn to preach there. I didn't go to seminary until I'd been preaching and pastoring for 20-some years. And so I learned to preach here. I learned to preach by watching Pastor Mitchell, by watching my pastor, by watching other preachers, by coming to conference and seeing them. That's how I learned to preach. And, uh, and, and, and like I said, I'm, I'm always astounded. I am totally astounded at the quality of preaching that is here. And that comes in discipleship. That's where it comes from. So, uh, another question right here. Can we run this far? <laughs> I had a question about, you talked about the weaknesses that you sometimes had. Or how important it is to work on those, like the reading your sermon from your notes or not looking at the audience. That's what, how much focus do you give that? I uh, put it in my sermon. Look at the people. <clears throat> Pastor Warner has a whole system, a system of uh, colors and, and fonts that tell him uh, emphasis, de-emphasis, quiet, loud. I mean, all the, the, whole, the whole dynamic. And so it is important. Uh, I, I can't deliver all of that today. You, it's in the books. It is actually literally in the books uh, that are there. I, uh, I just want to bring it to a conclusion. I came to my first conference, 1977, January. I was reading this book by D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. And, and it's very interesting, and, and it's about preaching. Preaching and preachers. And I had no intention of being a preacher at that time. No intention of being a preacher. No intention of being a minister at that time. And uh, I read that book. He spends 15 chapters. 15 chapters. On uh, the character of the pastor. Uh, the form of the sermon, 
the audience that's going to hear it, uh, uh, how to put the sermon together, uh, all of those different kinds of things. He finishes up chapter 15. He tells a story about a man who had uh, backslidden from his early church. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a medical doctor. He became a, he was a surgeon. He became a pastor, was pastored in, uh, in Wales, I think, for about 11 years, then went on to London. And uh, a man backslid out of his church in, in Wales. Uh, years later, the man's made a mess out of his life. He's on his way to the Thames River Bridge. He's going to kill himself. Uh, and uh, he knows that uh, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones is preaching. Uh, there he hears uh, the, uh, the clock, Big Ben, strike a certain hour. And so he wanders back. He says, I'm going to listen to Pastor, Martin, uh, or Pastor Lloyd-Jones one more time. And as he steps into the congregation, as he steps through the foyer, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, is saying these words, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That man repented, got his life together, became a profitable minister after all those years, wasted years, wasted, wasted, wasted years. And D. Martin Lloyd-Jones says at the end of that illustration, he says, what does that mean? What does it all mean? And he answers the question and he says, it means that we are in the hands of God. The preachers are in the hands of God. That ends chapter 15. Chapter 16. This is my 25 cents worth on this day. Is about the Holy Spirit. And he says, I held back on this. I held back on the issue of the Holy Spirit in preaching. Specifically. Because you need to put all the other things together. You need to do all of that. But all of that will not work without the ministry of the Holy Spirit. When G. Campbell Morgan preached out of Zechariah 4, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. He made a contrast between those two words, might and power. And he says, basically, they're the same word. They're used as synonyms in other places in the Old Testament. But one of the words actually has to do with the amassing of an army, the amassing of a force. The other word has to do not so much with the amassing of a force as it has to do with the relentlessness of a force. That is, one is the amassing of a massive army. The other one is like the continued punching, 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 punching to get a breakthrough. They both, might and power, are both necessary. And we need both of those. We need California conquest. We need outreaches. We need the amassing of our uh, forces. We need conference. We need all those things. We need a relentlessness in our evangelism. We need all those things. but they will not avail without the Spirit. They will not avail without the Spirit. There is such a power in preaching. We're in the hands of God. Your sermons will do things in people's lives that are beyond your belief. Then they'll be quite stunning sometimes and quite funny sometimes. Because somebody will tell you, thanks, Pastor, I really, really understood what you were saying about this and this and this, uh, and it really helped me. And you'll walk away saying, I didn't preach about that and that and that. <laughs> How did that work? We're in the hands of God. Henry Nouwen says, if pastors are uncertain of what is essential in ministry, they lose themselves in the merely important. One man said at a faculty retreat years ago, one of my colleagues said, does it bother you that some of our students are sexually promiscuous, that some are indulging in self-destructive and addictive practices? This is a faculty, this is a seminary faculty. And, and they're saying, 
does it bother you that they're not listening? And, the, and one of the faculty members' basic rejoinder is, uh, you know what? what? What would happen if I said, in my homiletics class, the goal of this class is for you to imitate me? What if one of your teachers said, I want you to imitate me? Doesn't that strike you as the height of conceit? But see, that's exactly what we're asking as preachers. That's exactly what we're asking. And so all the other things, character and all that stuff, all of those are important as well. Okay? Just two thoughts, traction and concrete. Okay? So I have some... Uh, bibliographies or references if you'd like a list of preaching books uh, you're welcome to take one I think we'll bring the uh, seminar to a conclusion so you can get ready for tonight I appreciate every one of you uh,